Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you, thank you. Yo, can we give it up for Sam again, too, man? Woo! My goodness. And Sean doing the announcements for the first time. You better go ahead. Yes, the roster is deep here at the Bridge Church. And uh, we are so glad uh, that you have joined us here this morning uh, to worship uh, together. And um, we have been going through a series uh, called Hopefully that's been dealing with this issue of hope. And you know, the reality is, part of the reason why it's taking, we're taking our time with it is because hope can be difficult, especially in the context of delays and in the context of waiting. Anybody out here know what I'm talking about when you're waiting and delays happen and it's just like makes hope that much more difficult and you know one of the greatest challenges to when i think about waiting and when i get the most frustrated is travel delays anybody know what i'm talking about like they're the worst i remember i was just you know on a flight uh last month and you know they you know i was on my way to the airport and they give you a nice little notification, oh, your flight is 15 minutes late. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it gives me more time. I don't have to feel like I'm rushing through security anyway. Then I get to, you know, security is like, uh, actually, it's been delayed an hour. I'm like, it's a little inconvenient, but, you know, that's cool. I get something to eat before. Then as I'm getting something to eat, your flight has been delayed two hours. All right? Now I'm like, see, now I'm going to be getting in at like midnight. Then it was like, well, we'll let you know when the flight's going to be here, right? <laughs> and then before, I, and I'm like, okay, this is the last flight. We get it boarded, seatbelts fastened. Sorry, y'all, the trip, the plane is canceled. The flight is canceled. Y'all got to go off the plane. Like, literally, that just happened, right? But as bad as that was, that is, has nothing compared to what we saw happen just a few months ago. Y'all remember this uh, in December when there was uh, the, a winter storm happened right before Christmas and um, Southwest uh, just had a meltdown. I mean, in five days, they canceled over 10,000 flights. And it was bad because in that same way where they just don't give you information, like they were like, well, it's just delayed, right? So we can't give you your bag back because your bag is on the plane even though, and they wouldn't cancel the flight. So people were just stuck with no luggage in the place that they didn't want to be in over Christmas. And, um, and not only that, when people were calling to try to change their flight, they would be on hold for hours. In fact, even the flight crews couldn't get a hold of like their own airline to figure out what was happening. There were stories of flight crews who the person, like the attendant or the pilot, went to bed on hold, woke up the next morning, and it was still on hold. <laughs> the CEO appeared before Congress 
And when they challenged him and asked him about the debacle, he said, yeah, we messed up. You think, bro? <laughs> you messed up, huh? But imagine that type of waiting. And what type of way that that can challenge just hope and just trying to get to where you're wanting to get to, right? And, and not having this incredible delays that are outside of your control. And you ever notice the longer you're on hold, the harder it is to believe that an answer is coming. You know, one minute, two minutes, you're like, okay, I'm just gonna keep myself busy. When it gets to like 10, you're like, all right, time to tap out. Well, imagine not 10 minutes or an hour or days, but years and decades of being on hold. And that's what we find ourselves in when we get into the text today in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that God spoke to in the time of incredible uncertainty and challenge and waiting. And so just a little bit of context for Isaiah. And by the way, um, since we don't have slides right now, what, if you, you, know, you can pull out your Bible app if you have that or download it. If you don't have the Bible app, just go into your app store and put Bible and you know, get the U version, really helpful reading out of the ESV, so we're going to, you know, keep it moving. But while I'm setting this up, you can go ahead and get ready with those things. We're going to be coming from Isaiah chapter 40. But just to give you some context, Isaiah um, is writing at a time in like 740 BC. Now, in 722, the Assyrian kingdom came and took over Israel, just northern kingdom. So there were 12 tribes. The northern kingdom was 10 of those tribes. And they essentially got conquered by the Assyrian uh, kingdom and t lost their sovereignty. They, they moved them into the, to the Assyrian nation. And so Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom, which is two tribes. It's Judah and Benjamin. And what he's challenging them to at first, so Isaiah starts with the rebuke and saying, hey, guys, y'all better clean up your act because if you don't stop committing acts of injustice, acts of unrighteousness before God. What happened to the northern kingdom, who you think you're so much better than, is coming to you as well. But then he doesn't just warn them. He also warns the rest of the nations as well, including the nations who were going and doing the conquering, like Babylon. And so chapter after chapter after chapter, Isaiah warns year after year, his ministry went for at least four decades of him pleading with his people, get it right. And finally, in, verse, in chapter 39, finally, the dam broke with the last king who disobeyed God. And then Isaiah announces, okay, it's your turn. Judah, you're going into exile too. Babylon is going to take care, is going to conquer you. And it's hard to describe how dramatically traumatic of a crisis this would have been for the people of Israel, for a people whose whole definition and identity was based on the, the sense that God had give, moved them from slavery into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land in which he made and appointed kings, like the actual king lineage came from God himself saying, David's our guy. And now you're saying that this same king it's reported, is going to be taken as a slave to Babylon and that their own land was going to be overrun and taken over. It was a crisis of epic proportions. And as you can imagine, people lost a lot of hope and faith in that time. 
And so it's really surprising that at the darkest moment in chapter 39, when Isaiah pivots to Isaiah 40, it's filled with more hope and more promise than anything else that has come before. And this corner turns and all of a sudden, even though they have been chastised, even though they've been disciplined, God is wanting his people to know this is not the end of your story. There's more to the story. And so that's where we find ourselves. But in the midst of that, the people were very much frustrated with God because they were like, how could you have allowed this to happen? Look at what they say in verse 27 of chapter 40. It reads, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? So this is God speaking to the people and saying, OK, why are you saying that I can't see you or your, your, your way is hidden from me? Like like that somehow either I can't see your plight or even worse, my right is being disregarded. Your right is being disregarded by me that I don't care that I am being unjust to you in the things that you're doing. Why, why are you asking this question? So essentially what he's acknowledging is that the people had complaints against God because of what had happened in their life. Have you ever had a complaint against God because of what's happened in your life? And the interesting thing is they should have first had their complaints against their false gods that they had trusted in instead of Yahweh. Maybe they should have turned some of that complaint to their self for the ways in which they had made decisions that continually oppress the poor and the marginalized and the ways in which they continue to rebel against God's standards. God had told them in the law, if you obey me, you'll stay in the land. If you disobey me, you will be cast out of the land. So why all of a sudden is there a complaint against God? And I think we have a tendency to blame God for our own consequences to our own actions. Can we talk about it for a second, saints? Like, I remember, you know, in college, you know, people like, yo, um, we were the ones that chose out, chose to go out and hang out instead of studying, right? But then it's like, God, you brought me here to this college. You made a way. Why are you failing me right now? And he was like, yes, I was the one that provided you to get enrolled, but you were the one that decided to do a body roll instead of going to study class. Like, that was your decision. Why are you blaming me for that? But sometimes it's not our own actions that are the cause of this sense of hopelessness or despair. Sometimes it's other people's actions. And that, too, is something that's a result of the brokenness of our world, right? That oftentimes people blame God for, like somebody does something tragic, tragedy befalls, you know, a nation, and then people want to blame God as if he didn't give us the autonomy and the agency to make decisions. But it can be easy to feel abandoned and to feel despair. But what God responds, how he responds to them and what he reveals to them is so important to this question of hope. Look at what he says. Well, I'm going to switch over, actually. You can switch over to the New Testament first, because I want to set the context, which is so important about hope itself. So we're going to go to Romans 8. And in Romans 8, chapter 22, there's another question that's asked. 
But it says this in verse 22 in chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Mm. Mm. Interesting. First of all, notice the groaning. It says that we are groaning with all of creation for, for things to be made right, for things to be made whole. How could you not be groaning inwardly when you look at the news and each day it seems like there's another mass shooting? Each day there seems like there's another instance of a random senseless violence. Each day it seems like another attack, another leader has fallen from grace. Each day it seems like there's another reason to have despair. How, we are groaning for change, groaning for something different. And not only that, but it says that especially the church is groaning for redemption. Sometimes I'm like, God, get me out of here. This place is nuts. But look at what he says, for this hope is what saves us. Like there is value to the hope that things will not stay like this all the time. But then he says, but hope that is seen is not actually hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in other words, God is saying he's doing something in us and is creating in us something more like him when he is causing us to wait, when he's causing us to be on hold. There's something that he's doing in your life, in your character, that's necessary to make you more like him. Here's the hard truth, saints. Hope requires us to be on hold. Hope requires us to be on hold. And there's something that God does in and through the process of being on hold that he can only do in that matter. And there's something when we get off the phone and see the deliverance on the other side, we're different as a result of being on hold. But it's important to ask the question, hope in what? Because a lot of people have hopes. A lot of people have aspirations. But, but it's important, as we talked about last week, that your hope, your foundation is in the right source. And so in Isaiah 40, he, he begins to explain and to, and to introduce the source of their hope, why it's okay for them to have that sense of hope. So we're going back to Isaiah 40 now. That was just like a little sidebar to kind of get us set up on the nature of hope. Now we're going to get into the person of that hope. Look at verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort my people. This is right after he just told them they're going to be in exile, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem he tells Isaiah, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort. 
he says. Comfort is probably the, the deep, one of the deepest desires that we have as a human race, right? Like this sense of comfort that even especially when things are not going right, especially in times of trial, they're in a wilderness, you're in a desert, there's death and disease that surrounds you, there's poverty and brokenness all around and in us, and in the midst of that, we want comfort. And so God reveals to them that comfort, comfort is here even when the brokenness is all around you. And look at how, why he explains it. He says, and cry to her that the warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, that context of warfare could also uh, be rendered the struggle. The struggle is real, but he's also saying, and he's speaking in the past. <laughs> I love, God speaks in the past tense when he's talking about the future. So that's why reading the prophets can be a bit confusing. Because he's saying, your warfare has ended, the struggle is over, but they haven't even gotten into, the, gotten into the struggle yet. The people are about to go into exile, and he's already given them a vision of that fact that it's going to end. That's going to help somebody. So what I'm telling you today is that in God's perspective, because he is outside of time, the struggle that you are currently in is already over. So he's encouraging you to have comfort. Oh, that's going to help somebody here today. But, but look at why and how. He says, because their iniquity has been pardoned. Their iniquity has been pardoned. So he, he, he brings it back that the, the sense of brokenness that they are experiencing is related to a sense of sinfulness, both meta-wise in the entire world, but also individually, micro, to them. And the way that God has to deal with that sense of sin is by pardoning. And you know what's interesting about pardons? Oftentimes, presidents, when they're at the end of their terms, they give out pardons to people who, for whatever reason, they established that either the justice system did something wrong or that person that they want to give another chance to. But you know what's a prerequisite to pardon? This is very interesting. You have to acknowledge and admit that you did something wrong in order to get pardoned. There are literally people who refuse to acknowledge their crime. So even though the president extended pardon to them, it was refused because they would refuse to admit that they did anything wrong. And that's exactly where we are in the state of the world, that God is offering a sense of pardon. He's offering a sense of forgiveness. He's offering a sense of having the debt slashed clean. But are you going to accept the pardon? He says, your sins, your iniquities have been pardoned. But then there's this really confusing phrase that, you know, we can, we might be able to, it says that, and you will receive from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. And if you read that incorrectly or at a close glance, you might think God is saying you're getting double the payment, like the penalty. But that's not what he's saying. When he talks about double for your sins, he's saying it wouldn't be enough to just forgive you. When somebody walks out of a pardon, that means that they walk out of that jail and they're a free citizen, but they got to start completely from scratch. They got to build up completely from the beginning. Like they're, they're maybe at a state of neutral. What God is saying here is that I'm going to give you double payment because the one payment is for your sins to be forgiven. The second is for us to have fellowship and community. You're not just going to be a forgiven criminal. You're going to be an adopted son, an adopted daughter in my house, which means everything I got is yours. That's the double payment. And then the next verse shows what this hope is built on. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Now, who is, what is he talking about? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight 
a highway in the desert. Well, you know the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Sometimes if there's things that you're kind of confused about and you're scratching your head about in the Old Testament, the best thing to do is to look when you see those little numbers on the bottom and it's pointing you somewhere. And in this one, you see it pointing you to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, and check out what it says there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, accept your pardon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It's a direct line, y'all. It's not complicated at all. He's saying Jesus. Jesus is how the pardon gets accepted. Jesus is how we get the double payment of not just forgiveness, but also reconciliation with a God and adoption into his family. That ultimately comes through him. And Isaiah is getting a glimpse of this hundreds of years earlier and getting a glimpse in the picture of how and why the exile will come to an end. They will come back to Israel because that's end up where the Messiah is born. And ultimately, they will be the blessing to the nations that, I, that Abraham saw in the very beginning. So the first thing that we can have hope in is hope is not in hope in what? It's hope in who? It's hope in the Savior. It's hope in the Savior, hope in the fact that I don't have to no longer try to save myself, but it is he who saves me. But look at what he goes on in Isaiah to explain more about this hope. He says, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. Uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now all of a sudden he's talking about all this geographic terms like make way, a a valley shall be lifted up, mountains shall be brought low. What's going on there? Well, it's important to understand that people he's writing to knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, when a king in ancient times, before they came out to go and visit their subjects, the people before would prepare the road for them because the roads were undeveloped. And they didn't want the king's horses tripping, falling, hurting, injuring the king. So they wanted to make sure that there was a clear path that was straight. And so there would be people who would go before the king to make the path straight for the king to enter into. And so that that was what we saw on a regular basis. And we even yesterday actually saw aspects of what happens when people get together to coronate a king, right? Like in England, for those who follow that kind of thing, King Charles was coronated and, you know, they've given a crown and all that. And the thing that was really interesting about the process is how elaborate it is. Like sometimes you just kind of get your, catch yourself getting caught up, like all the ritual and the entry. They had thousands of people gathered, millions along the road to kind of get a glimpse of this experience. And the detail that was involved, 4,000 troops, 19 military bands, escorted them on the mile-long procession from Westminster uh, Abbey, from, you know, to the Abbey from where they were at Buckingham Palace. And do you know how much this joint cost? They, estimates say that it costs about 100 million pounds, which is about $126 million for a coronation. You talk about preparations. And everything was planned for a king who doesn't have any power. Merely a ceremonial position. And all the things that they say and all the things that they regale him, 
and he has no subjects for real, for real. <laughs> Think about that for a second. And not only that, I don't mean to be morbid or disrespectful, but he's 74 years old. He's probably not going to reign for as long as his mama did. And yet they put a crown on his head that was worth $57 million for a crown. But Isaiah is pointing to a king who wore a crown of thorns, who wasn't put draped with a robe that was made with the finest fabrics, but put on a robe after they beat him to mock him. His subjects didn't line up to celebrate him. They lined up to say, crucify him, crucify him. And when he got on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was the cost of the forgiveness. And so when this king comes, what he's saying is that when, when, when he comes back, right, like it's not just going to be people making a way like John the Baptist did. When he comes back, the whole earth contorts and conforms to what he wants to see happen. Mountains made low. Mountains moved for the sake of his kingdom. So the second thing we need to do is have hope in the king. Oh, yeah, that's why we say Lord and Savior, right? Like he doesn't just save us and rescue us, but he also gives us instruction and order as a king over his subjects. But a compassionate king, not one who flaunts his wealth for others, but one who denied his wealth for others. That's the nature of this king. But the last question with this is, do you live as if it were true that God is a king who has unlimited strength and power? Do you live like that? That, like, that the king that we serve has greater wealth and power than a ceremonial king? Hope in God helps us to wait, helps us to be patient, knowing that not only does God have our best interests at heart, but he has the power to execute the interests that he has in the first place. And it's, it's not ceremonial power, it's real power. It's a power to speak to the winds and waves and they gotta chill out. It's a power to heal, to say, cancer, get up out of there, and it flees. That's the type of power we're talking about. So if we skip down to the last part of the passage, then we really get to see where the rubber hits the road. So God has some questions for him. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. <laughs> he said, all right, there's something different about this king than the kings that you guys bow down to. This king is everlasting. His reign and rule has no end. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. So he was there from the beginning, and he's going to be there to the end. And look, it says he does, not, he does not get faint or grow weary. God's own power and compassion is the basis for how we wait. Because if I can trust in his compassion and power, then that means I can trust that even though I don't understand why he's causing me to wait. Even though I don't, it doesn't make sense to me, even if it seems to contradict what I thought was how he was going to operate. His, his ways and his understanding are unsearchable. 
And so I, it's not a question of my intellect, it's a question of my will to trust and submit to the king. He doesn't get exhausted, and you'll see this pop up again in verse 29. Look, it says, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. <laughs> Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. He says, look, this faint and fatigue thing, he gives power to those who are weary. Do you realize what happens when we try to put all of our eggs in the basket of our determination and will? We get tired and worn out. You just, you can grind it out. You can thug it out for a little while. You can just grin and bear it and, and knuckle up and then for a little while. But eventually you get tired. Eventually I get tired. And eventually I get to a place where me trying to justify myself runs out of gas. Me trying to make it happen on my own runs out of gas. And so he, he flips it and says, look, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength because even young people get faint and tired. There's bridge kids up there right now. And as, sometimes when you're working with little kids, you're like, they never get tired. <laughs> they just run around all the time. But all the parents in here know they hit that wall eventually. And it's a glorious thing. <laughs> Sometimes it hits like a thief in the night. They just be like, da, 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 poof, and <laughs> just fall out. Even youths, even when, you know, we're watching the NBA playoffs, and like even the most conditioned athletes in the world can't play all 48 minutes. They get tired, need a break. But he's saying in contrast to that, God not only doesn't get tired, he gives strength to those who are tired. Yeah, but we have to not rely on our own ability. The Israelites who were getting this message were worn out from their hardship. They were worn out from king after king that let them down, that the world around them was falling apart. The rich were taking advantage of the poor, the violent from those who were vulnerable, and it seemed like there was no hope. But in the midst of that, God is saying, your way isn't hidden from me. Your perspective is off. And this is the last verse in the chapter. He says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. Depending on which translation you have, that word wait might say those who hope in the Lord. All right? Now, here's the reason why. The, the Hebrew word kava, which is translated, could, it basically means, there's, it, it initially meant this tension of enduring and waiting, and then came to mean as it was used, this aspect of hope, because that's what it feels like when you're enduring, is it feels like tension, it feels like strain, but in the midst of that, if I'm straining and having tension and I'm still looking forward to the thing, I'm expressing hope. And so, Hope equals waiting expectantly. That's what hope is. Like, that, that's why you can't have, tell you I have hope if you're seeing the thing that you want to hope in. Like it's, it's, it's gone. Hope is there's no place for hope there anymore. But if I'm hoping for that which I don't see, I'm waiting for it, but there's a way, patiently. I'm waiting for it 
eagerly. I'm waiting for it with a sense of expectation. And, and Isaiah uses this word more than anybody else in the Old Testament. 14 times it appears, kava, to wait and to have hopeful expectation. <clears throat> and there's no coincidence that he uses the phrase, uh, like mount up on wings like an eagle. You see, once again, the folks would have understood exactly what he was talking about because in Exodus 19, can I teach for a second? You got to understand the context of this stuff, right? In Exodus 19, this is a passage in which the Lord gives Moses a message for his people. And this is what it says in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We've been talking about that kingdom of priests and a holy nation the whole time. What Isaiah is doing is he's reminding them of what God already did and how he already delivered them on wings of the eagles. He said, y'all were in slavery for centuries and I delivered you into the promised land. And that same, I'm the same God. I didn't get tired. I didn't get weary. I didn't forget about you. I couldn't just overlook you. And so the same one who bore you up on eagle's wings will be the one that helps you mount up on wings like an eagle. There's another thing about the eagle that's very important. The eagle can soar higher than almost any other bird in all of the kingdom. It could go up to 15,000 feet in the air. You realize that's so high that we would need oxygen in order to breathe those level of heights. It can go that high, but it can also see very low. It can see and spot a prey a mile away. That means from here, it can be like, oh, that bird up in Crown Heights, I'm about to have chicken today. Like, that's how much they can see. That's how far they can see. And so what he's saying is God sees you from afar. Even though he feels far, he still sees you, and he's going to bear you up on his wings if you wait and hope in him. Exile is not the end of the story, but what you have to do is what Isaiah is telling them to do. Remember what I brought you out of to have hope of what I will bring you into. <laughs> you gotta remember, if you forgot, then you won't have hope because you just don't remember. But when you start to play back the memory tapes of where you were, what you were doing, how you, you had no hope before, then you start to realize, well, if he did it before, he could do it again. And it gives them that sense of hope. He says, remember, exile isn't the story because Exodus wasn't the end of the story. Where has waiting been a struggle in your life? When have you been struggling with this? Only those who trust in God's perspectives on their situations will run and not be wary. But how do we do that? How do we wait? We have to understand it's not those who work for the Lord, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And we wait on the one who's revealed himself as savior, compassionate, as king with all power, and the one who gives us the ability to wait. One last thing about this eagle's wings thing, that's a trip. Because the mount up can kind of be like, what is he saying, am I gonna get up on an eagle? It, it, it essentially means to soar on wings like an eagle. And this is the progression. In Exodus, when they were just like babies learning how to walk, he said, I, I bore you up as an eagle. But in exile, what he's saying is, I'm going to mature you, and now you're going to have your own wings to fly. You see, eagles 
have to, they, they, they nest so high in the, in, the, in the trees that they have to train and teach eaglets how to fly and how to use their wings properly. And what happens and why the hope gets longer and why the struggle gets started is God is trying to train and teach you no longer to just, you know, have one level of hope, but to get to the next level of hope where you're soaring, where you can actually navigate those waters yourself. So there's three aspects that I see here in this passage real quick. First is to understand that wait doesn't just mean sit still and do nothing. It means to serve. You see, when it says look to, like look forward to, like have expectation, it's not just meaning like sitting there. You ever notice why we call them waiters? What do waiters do? They don't just look. They look for what you might need. And the best ones kind of have a sense of, okay, are you ready to order now? How can I help you? How can I serve you? They are actively waiting, looking for ways to serve. That's how we wait. That's how we hope. How can I serve the Lord while I am waiting? That's the first point. The second thing about eagle's wings, (laughs) that's so great. They don't flap hard. They, They actually just coast. You ever see like an eagle just in the sky? Like they just, they just coast. And they allow the wind to do their work. In fact, they will wait until a super windy day that gives them the best opportunity to fly before they hunt. Here's the second point. It's simple. Relax. (laughs) Like some of us out there like ducks. You ever see a duck? It'd be like, uh, you know, just trying to do everything it can to get up off the water and fly. It ain't like an eagle. Eagle just be like, yo, man, chill. (laughs) And what that means is instead of, if I was in charge, I would do it the right way, God. It's not my will, but your will be done. Relax. How'd that for That's an action item. Relax. But some of us need that word. And then the last one, expect. You see, when the eaglets seeing Mama Eagle learn how to fly, see flying around, it's like, one day. I'm not there yet. It takes a few months for them to learn how to fly, but I'm gonna get there and I'm going to soar. And when you become agents of that same sense of hope, it becomes transformative in you and those around you. You begin to catch the draft of the windy days. And look at this, the windiest days are when the eagles have their best flying days. You'll learn to ride through the storms and you'll find that even in the storms of your life, you will be able to soar the highest because you've learned to wait on the Lord. Well, the Old Testament talked about a voice crying in the wilderness, and the New Testament revealed that that was Jesus that was coming. But we also know that as Old Testaments had to wait for the first coming of Christ, we have to wait for the second coming. But in the meantime, in between time, what we have is an opportunity to put our faith in him. Jesus said, come, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am, it is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that burden is light because Jesus covered us. He pardoned us. It was a heavy burden for him, but it's a light one for us. So because this is the source of hope, I want to be able to give a couple different opportunities to respond to the message today.
We hope this message was encouraging to you. We invite you to send us an email at info at bridgechurchnyc.com so we can hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Our handle on all our social media platforms is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we would love to see you on a Sunday. Our services are at 1030 a.m. and noon on Sundays at 345 Adams Street in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope to see you soon.